I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Brisbane Christian Fellowship sounds like a fairly innocuous name for a church. But the BCF and its network of organisations across Australia have been the subject of a Four Corners investigation and a detailed book, speaking with former members who have numerous stories of families being torn apart as a result of their involvement. Author Morag Swartz wrote that this church is every bit as pernicious and harmful as the exclusive brethren. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of corporal punishment and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Ray Jackson was the son of Sammy Jackson, song leader of Seattle's Bethel Temple under its founder, William Henry Offaler. Ray was born around 1908 and was one of three children to Sammy, with a brother named Dale and a sister named Naomi. He grew up to be a minister himself, married a woman named Ruth, and had two sons, David and Ray Jr. Ray undertook missionary work in Japan around 1932, when he would have been in his mid-twenties, And then in 1939, he, Ruth, and their first son were sent to Indonesia to continue this work. They were evacuated to New Zealand when Java was invaded by the Japanese in 1942. 
Ray felt that God was calling him to minister in New Zealand, and he returned to act as pastor of a Wellington church before heading back to the USA in 1948 to get involved in the burgeoning Latter Rain movement. You might remember the Latter Rain movement's influence on John Robert Stevens' Living Word Fellowship in Season 3, Episode 7 of this podcast, and I won't go into too much more detail here. But the general gist was that the movement believed the mainstream churches worshipped a God that wasn't alive, and that this revival would bring God's living presence back to believers through gifts bestowed by the laying of hands, such as speaking in tongues and healing. This living ministry would reform the church that had stagnated over the years, and ready true believers to attain perfection for the end times which were imminent. While Ray would take the prophetic notions of the more classic Pentecostal Bethel Temple to his future teachings, he also adopted the latter rain ideas around speaking in tongues and healing, along with the fivefold ministry, which you might remember from Sam Fife's The Move in Season 3, Episode 3, that consists of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Apostles and prophets in particular were a thing of biblical times in the mainstream churches, whereas to the teachings of Ray Jackson and his ilk, they had returned in the present day an appealing idea to someone who might perhaps see a lot of potential in being a modern-day apostle or prophet. Ray also took on the practice of being baptised in the name, which means being baptised in the name of Jesus Christ, rather than in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Anyone wanting to join his belief system to this day needs to be baptised or rebaptized in the name. A lot of this information is drawn from the work of Morag Swartz, who published the book Apostles of Fear, A Church Cult Exposed, in 2008. It's a comprehensive and captivating read, and I recommend it if you want to know more about this organisation and its roots, particularly from a theological perspective. The idea of modern-day apostles and prophets was heretical to many, including William Henry Offala and the Bethel Temple. But it was exciting to many who were looking for guidance as well. Ray Jackson was enthusiastic to bring his revelations from the latter rain revival back to New Zealand, though he found some resistance to the teachings. Ray next moved to Australia and focused his ministry from a base in Melbourne. By this time he and Ruth had had their second son, Ray Jr., who was 10 years younger than David. Ray Sr. taught some of his early followers from a house in Sydney for a short stretch, then later set up the Calvary Bible College back in Melbourne. Morag Swartz writes that this college was little more than an indoctrination camp, with no tertiary-trained teachers. Former follower Brian Rensford wrote that it was a Bible college, probably the only one in Australia, that had no library, had no access to the writings of other outsiders, had no outside lecturers, and that assumed a position of consummate arrogance when talking about the quality of other ministry, groups or people. David Holden had a friend attending the college in 1977. Quote, I asked my friend what systematic theology was he studying. He replied that there was no systematic theology, they just took notes on whatever the lecturer decided to give them. They never knew from one day to the next what they would be studying. They were totally at the mercy of those who gave the lectures, with no outside independent reference from which to check the information given to them. Ray's followers initially referred to themselves as being part of The Move, not to be confused with other episodes of this podcast with similar names. Ray himself was known as Broer, the Dutch word for brother, and resisted naming his movement in the early days as he wanted it to be non-denominational. 
This might remind you of some other episodes of this podcast too. Graduates from the Calvary College headed around the world to spread the message. A man named Alan Hall went to Auckland, New Zealand at Ray Jackson's suggestion in 1957. Alan also eschewed a name for his church, which became known as Brother Hall's. He was the father of eight children, and among them was a son called Victor Hall. Soon the problems of not having any name to refer to the work became too tricky, and the church's Ray set up had to be called something. He named them Emmanuel. Houses of worship under the Emmanuel banner spread to most of the major cities of Australia. The Brisbane outpost of Ray Jackson's Emmanuel outreach was the second most successful after the original Melbourne branch, and by the early 1970s had come under the leadership of one Vic Hall, the son of Alan Hall, who had felt called back to Australia from New Zealand. Morag Swartz writes that in the early days, many members were drawn in through Emmanuel's upbeat and original music, which was a precursor to the rock concerts now seen in churches like Hillsong. According to the author, songs originally written by members like Rhonda Holt are still published without attribution in scripture in songbooks used by various charismatic services today. Expectations on time and labour investment were high with members working hard to build and clean church properties, cater for weddings, and attend various church commitments or social activities most nights of the week. Single female members would be expected to drop everything if an elder needed babysitting. Missing any of the three Sunday services was unheard of, even in illness, and church was always to come before anything else. In the 1970s, word of the shepherding movement coming out of the Fort Lauderdale Five, who you may remember from this season's episode about the Logos Foundation, had reached Emmanuel. Ray Jackson was right on board with this idea, which you'll also remember from the Living Word Fellowship, around each person having someone more senior with whom they must seek advice on all life decisions. He rebranded it for Emmanuel as the Ephesian Pattern. You may recall that the approach of the shepherding movement has facilitated abusive relationships wherever it's been implemented. Ray Jackson called a conference in 1973 that was part of an attempt to bring the New Zealand churches closer to the movement he had been building in Australia. But what are now known as the New Life churches in New Zealand valued their autonomy and independence, and Ray's autocratic approach only served to push them away. Aside from this development, Emmanuel was flourishing and continued to gain new followers throughout the 70s. In 1977, they rebranded as the Melbourne Christian Fellowship, with the various regional centres going by Brisbane Christian Fellowship, etc. By 1980, they had outgrown their main Melbourne property in Canterbury, and a generous donation from a wealthy Texan couple allowed them to purchase 70 acres in Croydon. Here they constructed accommodation and a new building for the Bible school. Morag Zwartz interviewed a number of former members who were part of the organisation at the time, and all of them mentioned the lack of transparency around money. There was a general feeling that Ray Jackson was able to skim whatever he liked from tithes and offerings before the money was officially accounted for, and nobody really knew where it was all going, just that certain leaders seemed to be living in high levels of comfort while others were left to struggle. 
Many who were sent to far-flung places to do missionary work were totally unsupported and told to live by faith and that God would provide. Over and above the tithing, followers were expected to give Ray love offerings, directly and in cash. He was known to take plenty of overseas trips and drive brand new Chevrolets and Cadillacs imported from the States. Under Ray Jackson, there were women leaders appointed, though they couldn't remain in leadership if they married. And they were restricted by Ray's dress policies too, which in the early days included no long pants, short skirts or sleeveless dresses. Like so many men, Ray seems to have thought that it was up to women to keep a lid on his lust. And like so many such men, his own actions would prove this to be a complete fallacy. In 1988, a woman named Fiona Bronte blew the whistle and set off events that would become known in the Christian Fellowship as the Big Bang. For years, as a teenager, Fiona Bronte had been groomed and molested by Ray Jackson. She told Morag Swartz, He would pray with me after he abused me. I'd say, this is wrong, but he would always say, no it's not, you show me in the Bible where it's wrong. Apparently Ray's line was that if there was no penetration, there was no sin. Fiona said that Ray also told her she'd never be believed if she told anyone, and that they tried to get him before, but nobody had any evidence. Fiona ended up telling Vic Hall's secretary about her experiences of Ray Jackson's hypocrisy at a youth camp. She passed on the information right back to her boss, and the timing was ideal for the ambitious Brisbane leader. He saw his opportunity to take his rightful place from the apostle. Ray's second-hand man, Cess Barton, was exposed as a serial adulterer at the same time, with his wife Dot having had a long-standing adulterous relationship with Ray as well. All were removed from leadership, with announcements to the congregations that they had been stood down. The impact of this shock upon a flock who had seen their former leader as God's anointed can hardly be overstated. But many at the top had known about complaints from a number of women for years. As a former member who blogs under the pseudonym Paul Kovacs writes, It turns out that almost all of the eldership of that time had known since the late 1950s that the founding elder had been mixed up in affairs. How? Because three well-respected elders and multiple women had reported it between 1959 and 1980 to other elders. Ray's wife certainly knew about his adulterous ways from the late 50s, when she returned to the USA and Ray had to work very hard to get her to come back to Australia. Through the fivefold ministry, Ray Jackson had taught that Emmanuel was under multiple eldership, with various elders in positions of leadership and the idea that there wasn't a singular leader, even though Ray Jackson himself was very clearly the top dog. Though many left, this teaching allowed others to continue on in the belief system after the bombshell revelations, under the leaders who weren't tainted by them, including, of course, Vic Hall. And in a story that will be familiar to those who listened to episode four this season about Bob Barlow, according to Morag's wards, some also compared their former leader's sins with those of King David. That is, forgivable in the Lord's anointed, ignoring the fact that Ray's, like Bob's, were repeated rather than regretted. 
Vic Hall, along with a couple of other Brisbane leaders, came down to Melbourne and started a huge shake-up of what remained of the membership. They initiated what is best described as an inquisition, pressuring confessions from everyone, even if they had nothing to do with Ray Jackson's sexual abuse. And anything anyone confessed became common knowledge amongst the remaining leaders, sometimes coming out in public. Those at the top were facing huge shifts as well. Vic seemed to think that there was rot throughout the Southern group, and it needed to be dug out at all costs. After he was done, there were no longer any women in leadership at all. There was no real succession planning after Ray Jackson Sr., because Ray believed that he was an end-time apostle who would be seeing his followers into heaven. The idea that he wouldn't be around wasn't really up for contemplation. In the vacuum, there were a few options, and some might have expected Ray Jackson Jr. to step up, but Vic Hall turned out to be unstoppable. It took another few years, but by 1992, Vic was in full control of the churches under the Melbourne Christian Fellowship, Brisbane Christian Fellowship, and other associated names. Do be aware that there are churches under the same loose naming structure that aren't related to Ray Jackson or Vic Hall's teachings, or who eventually moved away from them, which is why I've titled this episode Brisbane Christian Fellowship. Ever since Vic took over, the Brisbane location has been the lead location, with Melbourne coming in second under Ray Jackson Jr., who backed Vic Hall in the end. Some refer to the broader structure as XCF, and you'll also hear BCF and MCF used a lot if you research these organisations. They also sometimes come under the name Restoration Fellowships International, or RFI. Simon Doyle was born into this belief system at one of the smaller congregations in Newcastle, New South Wales. His parents had joined during the transition period between Ray Jackson and Vic Hall, and Simon's upbringing was all under Vic Hall's leadership. Simon was kind enough to speak with me for this episode, and he told me a bit about the structure. So Vic Hall considers himself as a modern-day apostle, and he's been given a special revelation from Jesus. So he... He writes all this content for the different churches that they break down and they, they specifically follow the doctrine of Vic. Most of the leaders across the, the fellowship, so from all the different branches, uh, are connected to him via family. However, there are some of his inner circle that he's handpicked to help distribute his content. So the Brisbane Christian Fellowship is the largest of the centres and there are sub-branches in most capital cities and some regional towns, so I was mostly connected with the Sydney Christian Fellowship. Many say that under Vic Hall, things really started to get a whole lot more controlling. But former Sydney leader Brian Rensford writes, Vic did not hijack a better quality movement and bastardise it. He merely built on what Ray Senior had laid in the Moves Foundations, that's all. Vic never did anything original in his life. He enhanced and systematised the essentially corrupt principles and practices already in existence long before he ever got his hands on the levers of power. While the whole organisation may have been based on shaky foundations from the start, the personality at the top will always make a difference in one way or another. Morag Swartz put it like this. Vain, arrogant and cunning as he was, Ray Jackson seems at times almost benign when placed beside Vic Hall a man whose ego and ferocity it would be difficult to match.
Paul had grown up in New Zealand heavily influenced by his father's ministry, and started out with his own ministering in New Zealand. He recently said of those days that casting out unclean spirits, quote, was very much part of my early ministry with the Maoris, and it was very dynamic and dramatic. I had to deal with animism and uncleanness because all of those preachers and teachers were oppressed by spirits. Vic felt called to Melbourne in 1968 with his wife Lorraine and young family, where he confirmed his affinity for Ray Jackson's work. The couple had three children together, Jonathan, David and Julianne. David Holden, an evangelical who became concerned about the BCF when some of his relatives joined, wrote a leaflet about the beliefs of the organisation and its history in 1993, which he updated in 2008 following the Four Corners investigation. More on that later. David writes that Vic Hall was a toolmaker by trade and is very sceptical of his claim in the book Journey to Ephesus, which Vic co-authored, that he turned down a job offer in Melbourne as a chief engineer to head up to Brisbane. Vic also claimed in this book that he had met Jesus Christ, who he described as a medium-build, unassuming Jewish figure. Paul Kovacs summarises some of the new theology under Vic Hall on his blog, and an important aspect was naming. The idea was that God names people to their natures, careers and ministries, and that at BCF he does this via the elders. If a member attempted to name their own path, for example, decide they wanted to pursue a certain job, that was framed as self-naming, which Paul Kovacs writes was the worst thing you could do and deserved hell. The concept is reflected in some of the BCF music, with lyrics like, All my plans and vain longings of all I seek to be, my desire to name myself, keeps me from meeting you. Then there was an emphasis on headship, which maintains that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. The elders, being Christ's representatives on earth, known in BCF as the human face of headship, were to instruct members one-on-one about all aspects of life. This was a continuation of Ray Jackson's version of shepherding, though for women their husbands were to be submitted to under headship arrangements. Almost certainly things that wives said to their husbands in confidence would make their way up the chain in any case, and women could be called in for meetings with elders to be corrected or disciplined should they be seen to be out of line at all. Here's a quote from a BCF Communion Word article in June 2022 that demonstrates the views on headship and naming. Quote, Our only choice is whether we will forego our presumed right to determine our own life and destiny, which is the indication that we are still enslaved to sin, or whether we will lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us, which is sonship as part of his body. I clicked on this particular article because its heading, The Freedom of Choice, intrigued me. Here's another illustrative quote. There are two concepts of freedom, the freedom of choice that Christ delivers us to, and the false freedom that Satan tells us we can exercise if we are independent, self-choosing, self-determining, self-seeking. Paul Kovacs says that the men's one-on-one sessions with elders, quote, varied from fireside chats to the Spanish Inquisition. His were the latter, and he says he would regularly arrive shaking and depart in tears. Paul also mentions marred headship, which was the admission that since even the elders were imperfect, if they made mistakes in their judgment, 
then this was really just character building and they were to be forgiven. And nothing was treated as confidential. Former Toowoomba leader John Simmons told the ABC's Four Corners, even a private conversation in counselling, all that happened in that situation had to be relayed back to the central elders. Suffering was inbuilt as good for you as well. And Paul Kovac says that often members wouldn't help others who were struggling so as not to deny them their slice of suffering. All of this also came under the concept of fathering within the BCF. And Simon Doyle told me a bit about how that worked for him. So essentially, my understanding of it is that the, and this is based on my experience as well, is the, the biological parents are kind of pushed aside from, from their children. So I was taken under the wing. So the, the leader of the Newcastle group is where I grew up. He took a special interest sort of in, in me and was always involved and around in my life. So he sort of became like they basically squashed my own parents out of the picture and then he sort of stepped in and, you know, for all my life, big life decisions, I would be encouraged to go and seek him out. So by the time I was in my teenage years, I didn't go to my own parents for sort of big life questions and things that you would have discussions with. You're always kind of referred to go to the, the leaders of the, the church sort of to their input rather than your own parents. Essentially, that's, that's really what it comes down to is that the younger they get you, the more able they are to basically insert themselves into the family structure so that the children go to the leaders rather than their actual parents. Morag's wards transcribed this from one of Vic Hall's sermons. Fatherhood and reason are opposed to one another. At the Sydney Christian Fellowship, after Simon moved to Sydney from Newcastle, the leader was a man named Tim Morris, who was designated at teacher level. Tim used to like mentioning that his sister was married to Andrew Forrest. All the leaders have a lavish lifestyle that they engage in, and Tim Morris pretty much has that, but on just having that connection within his family makes it a whole another additional level of rich snobbery that, you know, some of the others don't have. For example, he sent his kids to the most prestigious private school within the Southern Highlands just and you wonder how did they get the money and he's basically just taking it in from the, the group. So, As you would expect, the BCF has a lot of rules around dating and marrying. There's a whole paper by Vic, David Hall and Murray Wiley about the various phases of a relationship, which of course would have to be approved. But Simon found that in the Sydney Christian Fellowship, it was even harder to make any progress because Tim Morris would so rarely marry any of the young people. As far as I can tell, unless you are one of like his family, so when I left there was about, I'll say 10, 10 young adults who were in Christian fellowship terms, eligible to be married by that. I mean, they were 25, they were had successful jobs, they were fully committed to the program, and you would have thought that by that stage, you know, they would have would have been partnered off. But because of the courtship process, it's Tim would not just would not marry young adults. So yeah, it was just a bizarre thing that, you know, there was all these 30-year-old men and women who you would have thought would have been able to be married, but they just weren't. So he just made it difficult for people, whereas, you know, compared to the Brisbane group and 
granted they are a lot bigger, but, you know, by the time people got to 24, 25, they were moved out of young adults and, like, the, the leaders married them. In any of the congregations, young people could be deemed unmarriageable if they were too rebellious or didn't meet the criteria. And this could obviously cause a lot of issues in someone's life. One thing Simon told me gave me an inkling as to a potential reason for keeping people at the pre-marriage phase in his congregation, when he mentioned the expectations on his time every Sunday. I had to get there super early and set up the hall, had to clean the car park, basically open up. So I was there well and truly before, like an hour and a half before everyone just sort of setting it up. Because I was young and single, it was expected of me that I was there from the get-go and I was there, like, and I left when I cleaned the whole place again. Speaking of volunteer work, another former member, Damien Chimes, told A Current Affair in 2008 that gardening at the Toowoomba leader's property and looking after his cattle was all done by volunteer church labour. I understand this leader would have been a man named David Falk at the time. Writer Chris Stevenson includes a rather telling quote attributed to Tim Morris on her blog, quote, For it is humility, the complete abasement of our own assessments and thought processes, that opens the way to freedom. Simon always got the feeling that Vic wasn't particularly interested in expanding the fellowship, that he was happy with the numbers he had. Simon watched a lot of men once considered elders fall out of favour under Vic, including his once right-hand man, David Falk who had started getting involved in outreach work in Indonesia around 2015. All of a sudden, David Falk, previously named a prophet in the fivefold ministry, was out. Persona non grata, and the congregation told he was no longer on the correct path. David Falk had once said at a Toowoomba Christian Fellowship service, as related to Morag Swartz by a former member, it doesn't matter if you are in a cult, just obey your leaders so the grace of God can come to you. He apparently wondered in the same sermon whether David Koresh's followers had made it to heaven through following their cult leader to the end. Some say the man himself had bragged about earning over $700,000 annually prior to his departure, and there are murmurings on forums about whether his departure had anything to do with financial mismanagement, though this is impossible to verify. Simon thinks this insularity and lack of interest in growth is about the limited number of people the belief system understands will be allowed into heaven. The, the Christian Fellowship very much believed that we are in the end times. And just before I left, they thought they'd calculated when Jesus will return. And so they estimated that there's somewhere between 20 and 42 years left before the apocalypse comes and if you're not part of the, the tribe, then you're, you're out. But so what they sort of preach is, that, you know, there was 12 apostles about the time of Jesus who established the early church. And then since since that time, there's another 12 apostles that are mentioned throughout in the book of Revelation. So their numbering is that there's 24 apostles throughout history since Jesus who will each bring a certain number of people in, into heaven. So the 144,000 people who will be saved is from the time Jesus was born to basically the end of time. And, yeah, so Vic, Vic very much believes that he is the last of the 24 apostles and that we are essentially in the last, the very last time period of history before it all basically is imploded. 
To Simon, Vic's 5,000-odd followers are about his allocated lot, as one of these 24 apostles. David Holden writes that he heard from a reliable source about the view of what will happen in this implosion. Quote, BCF once held to the pre-tribulation view, the view that the church will be raptured from the earth before the great tribulation occurs. Now they believe they will go through the tribulation while protected in the wilderness. I asked Simon about the weekly expectations on members' time while he was involved. So there was a Sunday, then there was a prayer meeting during the week, then there was a midweek Bible study. Uh, so that, that was the three that were absolutely compulsory. And then as a young adult, I had a Saturday meeting I had to go to as well. Yeah, they were the four, four big ones. And then every couple of weeks, there was an additional meeting on a Sunday afternoon that we had to attend or a Saturday, full day Saturday. So yeah, four, four to five weekly Damien Chimes told A Current Affair that at one point his own weekly timetable was reviewed by a leader, and he was told that he wasn't allowed to have any gaps bigger than 15 minutes. Damien was told by his father that he had to be completely committed to the church and go to all of their events. When he said he couldn't manage to do this, his father told him, you're not following my rules, you can't live under my house, and Damien was kicked out of home at the age of 19. He found himself homeless, sleeping in parks and bus shelters. Weekly gatherings were usually at people's homes, while Saturdays and Sundays were in the church buildings, which for BCF-related groups usually look more like convention centres than traditional churches. Simon told me about how the Sundays would generally run. I had to be there just for the music practice and for the first you know, 20 minutes of the session, first session, you'd have, like, songs they'd sing. So they basically, the songs are about the latest topic that Vic's written his book about. So they sing a whole heap of the songs that he, one of the musicians from Brisbane write these songs. So you're basically singing the songs that Vic's, like, his content for his books. Then afterwards that, they'd have, like, a another half an hour session, which they would call, like, a spirit spirit-filled worship something time. So it's basically where they would just go into singing and speaking in tongues and they would be inspired by the Holy Spirit and that's where part of the time where random people would be able to come up and directly speak if they knew something about you. So say, oh, this person's gone wayward and God is angry at this person for, you know, going out on a Saturday night and God's calling this person to repent. So it's like basically it was where the peer sort of level of, you know, that you were getting in trouble from your peers at that point. And then afterwards they'd have an hour, hour sermon from one of the leaders. It wasn't necessarily the top leader at that point, but it was just an hour sermon. Then you'd have a break for half an hour. And then you'd come back and do another hour, another hour sermon. At BCF, followers were expected to tithe 10% of their income before tax rather than after tax. And that wasn't where the monetary contribution stopped. Yeah, so yeah, initially 10% straight up and then they would justify 
that you had to give them extra money. So one of the ones that I remember was called first fruits. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites had to give a particular amount of grain from their first crop of the season, like straight to the, the temple. And so they said, oh, you've got to give your first fruits. So, you know, if you ever got a promotion, your entire wage was straight up given to the group. This teaching went right back to the days of Ray Jackson, who taught about the first fruits and double tithing for a double blessing. Today, tithing might also be expected from the profits of a property sale or any other financial windfall. Simon was on a good wage at this point in time, but as part of that, he was also expected to entertain members at his house constantly and provide all the food and drinks for that, and money went on travel to various locations for conferences and the like as well. It all added up. Simon once did a few calculations and figured out how much of his money was going to the church or in support of church activities. I think it was about 60% straight up. Like when I did my tax, I was like, where is all my money gone? And then I sat down and broke it down. I'm like, oh, that's where it's gone. Like, yeah, it was huge. Like Ray Jackson before him, members saw Vic Hall and others at the top of the BCF food chain living a very comfortable life. Former member Helen Pomery told Four Corners that she knew the elders lived exceptionally well, as she had been to their houses, and that, quote, often when they are discussing a pastoral matter, they will go and they will dine at five-star restaurants. Brisbane Christian Fellowship Inc.'s 2022 financial year submissions to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission show $3.8 million in donations and bequests, over $10 million in total assets, 15 full-time equivalent employees, and an estimated 300 volunteers. There are separate listings for Melbourne Christian Fellowship, Sydney Christian Fellowship, Toowoomba Christian Fellowship, etc., all with their own financial returns as well. Under listings for Restoration Fellowships International on one of their websites, I've counted over 20 groups across Australia, as well as two international ones in Papua New Guinea and Singapore. Former member Roger Williams wrote, I'm not sure it was a good witness to see the leadership change their cars every 40,000 kilometres when many in the fellowship drove old bombs. Simon never had much direct contact with Vic Hall, but he has one personal recollection. I remember him staying at our place when I was a child and he slept on, you know, those fold-out futon beds and uh, they are not comfortable. And, And as an adult, I thought back on that, I'm like, Ha! He's at least had one really uncomfortable night. There weren't official confession sessions as such, but everybody knew everyone else's business, and the leaders would always have a feel for if a member wasn't revealing enough of themselves to the group. It wasn't formal, but there was an expectation, and they used the term fellowship. So whenever they thought you weren't engaged enough with anyone, they would throw, oh, you're not in fellowship enough, card at you. So, and basically where the leaders would, if they didn't get a read on you, because everyone knows everything. So a lot of the time they use the peers to check in on you to sort of see how things were tracking. But if the leaders felt like they needed to get more information specifically on you, they would like basically guilt you into you're not fellowshipping with us enough. We don't know where you're at. So they would sort of put that expectation on you to then find time to to meet with the leaders individually where they would basically get you to tell them everything that you've been up to so that they could then use that information against you in in a sermon or, or something yeah which was fun to deal with 
Damien Chimes put it this way for a current affair, quote, they use fear and humiliation to control people. It was common practice that, you know, you're always sitting in your seat wondering, oh, are they going to use me as an example this week? And you always just, yeah, you always had that, that worrying if, if it was going to be you who they had the spotlight on. At one stage, as a young adult, Simon was working to help set up the NDIS, which for international listeners is the Australian government's national disability insurance scheme. And he had an opportunity to establish a new office. So I said, I'm moving to Albury and going to set up the office there. And the amount of pushback that I got from the leader saying, oh, you can't move there. There's a, even though there's a church in Wangaratta, they're like, no, you can't move there. You're planted here. You have to stay here. And yeah, I never really understood why. Simon explained to me that members never owned their own time or resources either. He gave me an example. My car got taken off me. So I was, it was a wedding and I had a, a, I've got a Camry. So it was a big car. It was white. And they just were like, oh, we're taking your car. I'm like, oh, okay. And they're like, and you've like, it's part of your offering to the couple. You have to, you have to take like your car's part of the, the bridal party. And so my car got taken off me. I wasn't invited to the wedding and I wasn't invited to the reception. Simon had to make his own way to the reception, which he wasn't allowed to stay at just to get his own car back. It was just like my car was more important than me that day. And it was just really weird just hanging around this reception, you know, waiting for the bridal party to come and give my car back to me essentially so I could get home. Yeah, it was just one of those weird, as I said, like I didn't own my car. It was my car, but, you know, they took it (laughs) for their own purposes. I also asked Simon about BCF's ideas around raising children. So the Christian Fellowship very much promotes harsh discipline. They use the scripture as a method of justification for children will not be spared the rod, basically. So I did see children during meetings that were just dragged out by their parents and, you know, with a big, big stick and, you know, they'd come back in 10 minutes later crying. Well, their their face was red, but, you know, you saw it happen. Children were very much taught that they had to be in meetings, sit very quietly. They just had to take it all in. As as they got older as well, you were expected to just take copious amounts of notes. So in the the hour-long lecture, you were just expected to just be writing everything that the leaders were saying. And Probably one of the hardest things I have had to deal with is you weren't allowed to have emotion, good or bad. So you weren't allowed to have any sort of emotion. You just had to be basically flat. If you think of emotions like joy and happiness, if you expressed that, you were labelled as prideful. And if you had emotions such as anger, you were basically called out for being not walking the path that God had for you. So you basically had to be a robot and anything less or more than that was they jumped down your throat on. So learning to firstly have emotions was a big thing for me, but then learning how to manage huge emotions as an adult without sort of any sort of training through my teenage years about what to do with big emotions. Yeah, my psychologist has had a bit of work cut out for her. You'll likely have some opinions about this from what you've already heard but I asked Simon whether anything struck him as dangerous about the BCF in the ways that it operated. Look, I think the the largest thing that really strikes me as dangerous is the blind loyalty that people have and the lack of critical thinking. And I think society in general is not good at critical thinking and cults particularly capitalise on this. But the leaders 
from Christian fellowship don't have theology. Uh, like none of them have got a theology degree, yet they claim to be an authority on the Bible. Yeah. That's bizarre because, you know, at least other religious organisations, they, they study the Bible critically, whereas Christian fellowship people don't. They just believe that they're the authority on it because they've got a special revelation. They don't have tra- training in psychology or social work or anything like that, yet they provide counselling on, like they provide marriage counselling, they tell the younger people basically how to live their lives. I can remember one time Tim pretty much poo-pooed modern psychology and basically said this is a load of crap, but, you know, I've got the answers, so they make outlandish claims like that. Damien Chimes told A Current Affair, I remember being told off when I was about 16 because I was reading the Bible and I wasn't reading all the books that the ministers were writing. Although the BCF's listing with the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission says that they provide relief of poverty through provision of basic life necessities and care of the elderly through community-based social and religious programs, Simon never experienced any community outreach work during his time in the organisation. I can remember sitting through sermons where they would very much speak down upon people on welfare or people who were of a lower socioeconomic status, which I've always found was rather, even even in the group, I thought was a really big discrepancy because if you go through the Gospels, you look at who Jesus sort of hung out with and the people that he interacted with. I always found it odd that we didn't outreach and we didn't try to reach these people. We didn't do anything for the poor. We didn't do anything with nursing homes. It was just like a complete, I couldn't understand it. And when I tried bringing these things up, it was just the conversation was shut down very quickly and they would justify it with, oh, you know, we don't have to do good works to be saved. That's not what we're about. You may think that at least the BCF would minister to their own members if they were in ill health. But former Toowoomba Christian Fellowship leader John Simmons told Four Corners that when he ended up in hospital after suffering from a heart attack, his wife informed Vic, and he told her to tell her husband that he was going to die as this was God's judgment upon him. John's son Hayden says he was told of his parents that he was not allowed to talk to them and they're bad people, they're evil and the Lord God is punishing them. Helen Pomery has spoken widely about her experiences in the BCF, to Four Corners and other media outlets, and to Morag Swartz for her book. Her treatment was really shocking and resulted in clinical depression and PTSD. She says that seeking psychological help, without the elder's blessing, saved her life. Helen had always been a loyal wife and devoted mother, and when she and her husband Graham joined the BCF, She worked hard to follow the headship expectations and to become fully subservient to her husband. Helen told the Brisbane Times about the expectations of women, quote, The elders held a men's sexuality seminar out here, and they said that my body was not my body, it was his body, so my husband had every right to demand that whenever he chose. She also said, I know of wives whose husbands said they couldn't use the car to go out other than to the shops and the husband would record the odometer reading in the morning and check it hadn't changed in the evening. When her eldest daughter was set to marry Vic Hall's eldest son, 
Helen was put under increased scrutiny, involving a series of confessions and dressings down, in person and in writing. The fact that she kept a journal was held up as a sign of independent thought and lack of subservience. In response to the criticisms, it seemed like no matter how hard she tried to change, she couldn't get it right. To me, it sounds like the process was never made to allow her the ability to pass any tests, but instead was set up to totally break her down. And it succeeded. Helen gave Morag Swartz an example of the headship dynamic in her marriage. When she asked her husband if she could attend the 25-year anniversary of a close friend whose husband didn't have long to live. Helen had been a bridesmaid in this friend's wedding party, and Graham denied her the trip to Adelaide to attend the anniversary celebration. I find it incredibly difficult to understand how this could indicate a healthy marriage relationship approved by God. No doubt Graham would have sought counsel from his own headship arrangements in this decision to limit Helen's movements and external friendships. The elder that Graham met regularly one-on-one with was Murray Wiley, a man with a long history with Vic Hall and a formidable reputation for eviscerating people in his condemnations. But even Murray Wiley himself would eventually be ousted from the fellowship, though this wouldn't be for some years yet. Helen's second daughter began dating a young man that her father didn't approve of, and was kicked out of the house and then out of the BCF. Graham repeatedly refused Helen's requests to contact her daughter, and she was punished in various ways when she found herself unable to follow these directions. She later said of this experience, To be asked to treat my daughter as if she were dead, but knowing that she wasn't, was torture. Nobody understands the horror of being trapped inside a cult. The daughter that had married Vic Hall's son was no longer in contact with Helen, presumably told by the elders that she was better off without her, and her son had also frozen her out. If Helen became emotional about the situation, she was rebuked for her tears, which were framed as a woman's way of manipulating men. She told Four Corners, I knew if I didn't get to help, then I would probably suicide. And so I went to a GP and I said to him, I need help and then he sent me to a psychologist. But if anything, that infuriated my husband and the elders even more, that I should go outside of the home for help. Then one day, when Graham was away, Helen picked up the phone to tell her ousted daughter that she loved and missed her. The punishment was swift and brutal, and Helen found herself kicked out of her home, with the locks changed the next day. Divorce papers would follow in a year, with Graham blaming Helen for this, of course, saying... I'm not divorcing you, I'm just putting into the legal arena what you have already done. Graham comes across rather awfully in all of this, and his actions seem pretty indefensible. But we know that many people in cults will do all sorts of things that they believe they are doing out of some version of love. By all accounts, Graham and Helen's marriage, before they went into BCF, was a wonderful and mutually respectful one. It had lasted almost three decades for good reason. Helen's story is heartbreaking in so many ways, but provides a look into shunning practices and how they operate. The pressure on Helen to totally disconnect with her daughter was immense, and her other children were clearly influenced to disconnect with her too. Throughout Helen's multi-year ordeal, her parents had tried to provide some comfort to their daughter, whose pain they were witnessing the entire time, and they too were rebuked by BCF elders. A note by leader Ian Barlow from the 27th of September 2000, which was documented in Apostles of Fear, included, 
took the opportunity to strengthen Helen's father in standing in support of Graham's headship in the family and making sure the mechanism of love, in brackets comfort, ceases. I then spoke severely to Helen's mother that her comfort love was not truth and was destructive. Following Helen's excommunication, her own parents were pressured to, quote, cut her free and make it clear to her what you have done and that you are not standing with her in her actions by Graham. They, like Helen, could not bring themselves to treat their own daughter in such a way. In the end, Helen told Morag's wards that although Murray Wiley seemed to be directing all this destruction, they were always on the phone to Vic Hall, quote, he is the mastermind at destroying families and marriages. Helen Pomeries is not the only family with relationships heavily impacted by their involvement. One person who reached out to me told me that her family had been torn apart by the BCF, and she knew of an elder who she says has completely controlled a female family member since her husband has passed away. She's also had loved ones excommunicated from the organisation who are too apprehensive to have a relationship with her, as they've been indoctrinated to believe that she is evil and she desperately hopes that one day she'll be able to repair those broken bonds. Former member David Jones told A Current Affair in 2015, I lost my home, my wife, my family, my employment. Everything was gone. He had been asking too many questions, and before he left was told by elders that if he kept arguing, he would be struck dead. The Melbourne Christian Fellowship website says under Our Beliefs in the About Us menu, quote, We can receive guidance on how to be set free from sinful behaviour and attitudes that cause distress, disharmony and division in families and society. The Four Corners investigation that featured Helen Pomery's story, along with a variety of other former members, came out in 2008. Morag Swartz was interviewed and said, The way the church operates is that they're more than happy to facilitate the breakup of families. But it goes one step further than that, they actually orchestrated. Simon was 15 at the time the program aired on the ABC. I remember watching this documentary and I was just horrified at all these things that came out and I, it really unsettled me for a number of days. And so I got sat down, one of the leaders came over and he sat down in basically a three-hour meeting, basically he's like telling me all their version of events and how the person, everyone in the documentary was just, you know, it was all wrong and they were lying and it was all disgruntled and they were just, you know. So basically got was gaslit and the whole basically told that, you know, everything in that documentary is just a complete lie and it's just not, not true at all. But, you know, it sort of still disturbed me a lot and every time I brought it up, even like just talking about it with my peers, they're just like, oh, you know, it's it's fine. Like it's not it's not true. It's not like it's, it's not, not true. We don't have to think about it. But I'm like, well, what if it is true? And they're like, but it's not. And it was just that initial, like, straight shutdown. At the time, I didn't have the critical thinking skills to really dig too deep. But, yeah, it was just that it really, it really unsettled me. Simon started having his own doubts as a result of the program and the BCF's response to it. But it would still be some time before the doubts would become strong enough to make him think about leaving. 
In 2010, former Maryborough Christian Fellowship pastor Graham Harry commenced a lawsuit against Restoration Fellowships International, with claims that the organisation owed him hundreds of thousands of dollars and had told his wife to leave him. Graham had some years earlier confessed an affair that seems to have been brought back up when the elders wanted to remove him from leadership. He had been devoted to the church for 18 years. My understanding is that the matter was settled out of court for a substantial sum, and likely with a non-disclosure agreement attached. In 2015, a serious restructure took place, with two of Vic Hall's closest supporters ousted in quick succession. This was the departure of David Falk and Murray Wiley. Murray Wiley had been around since Ray Jackson's days, and supported Vic's leadership ambitions in Ray's downfall. He'd written much of the BCF music that shared Vic's messages up until about 2010, and for many it was unimaginable that he'd ever leave. I'm not entirely clear on the circumstances of his departure from the organisation. A poster under the handle Bagel commented on the Streetcar Forum for discussions about the BCF and related groups on the 31st of October 2019, quote, I think one thing I've learned since leaving is that XCF is not really much different to any organisation where the majority of power rests in the hands of one person. That one person tends to gather yes-men around them, and those people are often chosen for their dullness, not for their brilliance clever enough to deliver the message and smart enough not to challenge things. If they do start to get above themselves, well, you can see that the MCF and BCF system will deal with them. With those two gone, it was a huge, basically, restructure of the entire senior leadership team. That really was quite interesting to sort of sit through. On a personal level, Simon was dealing with a fair bit of turmoil as well. At one point, he'd been invited to be best man at the wedding of a good school friend. I, there was a lot of pressure put on me that I couldn't attend his wedding because he wasn't part of the group and, you know, how could I endorse his marriage and all of this crap. So three months out from his wedding, I actually basically I went and saw him and I was basically broke down and said, look, I just can't, can't be there. I won't be at your wedding, I won't be in your reception party, you know, won't be there. And so that really disturbed me. But, you know, I just had to sort of live with it. And then it was only by chance that I actually called him when I moved back to Newcastle. I tried over the years to sort of get back in touch with him, but he basically blocked me and didn't want anything to do with me, which would be fair. But it was only by pure fluke that I actually managed to get in contact with him again. And I said, look, I need to see you face to face. And if nothing else, I need to apologise for what I did. And so... At this point, I had had a mental health breakdown and I knew that something was wrong. I didn't, I couldn't articulate my whole experience, but I could articulate enough that the group that I was involved with was really dangerous. This wasn't the only time that Simon had been told he needed to distance himself from people outside the BCF. That same sort of experience where I was just, you know, told to cut off people from the get-go that weren't in the group was, it was, it happened a couple of times. And by about the fourth time, my friend from the group my best friend in the group, he was, he'd left. And the leaders basically said to me, you, you can't have anything to do with him. And just like, I'm like, why? I said, like, if, if everything you're saying, like, wouldn't, like, he need someone to go and get him? Like, if he's lost and, you know, he, he actually needs someone to go and get him and bring him back. And they're like, no, he's gone. Like, you can't touch him. He's, you know, like, it just didn't, you know, against their wishes, I like, continued to talk to him and, you know, was able to 
since I've left as well, you know, how I've been able to rebuild our friendship to a point. But, like, I just, even, like, that was just, why are we cutting him off? It doesn't make sense to me. He's one of us. Like, but, yeah, so that's sort of, I guess, the strangeness that I saw. As former member Roger Williams wrote of his departure from Melbourne Christian Fellowship, if friendship gets expressed in the group, but then it ceases when one leaves the group, well, then I say that's not friendship. It doesn't line up with what God's word says about love either. Simon tells me that he was really on the way out in 2017, but it was a 12-month process until he did actually leave. And as is often the case, there were a few components that led up to his final departure. The process started with a particular subject at university, and this might have you thinking about why so many cultic groups are so against their members getting a higher education. I was studying social science and one of the things we had to talk about was Karl Marx's theories on power and we had to relate it to a group we were involved in. And, you know, I've got dyslexia, so writing's not an easy thing for me to do and it would normally take me a good two weeks to sort of write an essay. And this was a 2,000-word essay that I had to get done and I managed to just relate everything that I was learning about in the Karl Marx's like, theories on power directly to the, the what I was seeing in the group. And I just I remember sitting back and I'm like, that's actually really concerning. That was really easy and that shouldn't have been that easy. That was one red flag. Another was the BCF's treatment of various members. How I was treated in the group and just always being on the outer, but also how some of my friends who have disabilities were also treated. And as a social worker, that was really bothering me. Simon says he would witness these people being the butt of jokes and he couldn't stand for it. And I'm like, that's pretty offensive. And then, you know, I'd, I'd say say something and then was, oh, that's just a joke, you've got to lighten up. We didn't mean it. I'm like, you, you don't say something like that and not mean it. Like, that's pretty offensive. But also offensive because of, like the industry that I was in and the work that I was doing was just they were having a, a dig at people with physical disabilities as well. I'm like, this is what I do. Like, these people are people and I work with them and I'm actually finding what you're saying quite offensive. It was just, yeah, that it just what I was seeing was, as we've touched on before, was the discrepancy between what would be considered Christian behaviour and what the Gospels were saying and how the group was acting. And there was a huge discrepancy there and I just I didn't like it. Simon had also met the woman who is now his wife through work, and she was giving him a different perspective on how relationships could be. When, when we were getting to know each other, I saw something different in her that I'd never seen before, and it was kindness. So I, I'd been away, I'd worked away that week, I was in Bathurst, and so I got back at about 5.30 in the afternoon back to the office in Penrith, and she She'd hung around that day and she just said to me, she said, oh, so what are you still doing? She said, oh, you know, I just wanted to be the person that you, like, just say hello to and, you know, talk to and, you know, if you had a rough time, like, just to be that support for you. And I was just blown away. Like, I'm like, I've never experienced this in my life. Like, no one's ever cared for me. Like, so that was a real eye-opener for me. So the the group put a lot of pressure on me to break up with, with her and I just this constant beat down. I'm like, I... I don't want to spend my life with this group. If this is the way you treat me, then I don't want, I'd rather be with her. So I was fortunate that I had her as a pull factor out of the group, but 
it was, yeah, basically the choice came down between the group or her, and I chose her. I'd wondered what Simon's future wife, who he told me is a feminist, had thought about the religious group he was involved with when they were getting to know each other. She saw some things, so I, I said some things initially that she really irked her, but she sort of just had this inkling that, you know, I wasn't speaking from what I believed. She thought I was definitely being a puppet. And she sort of started doing her own research and came across the oodles of information that is on Brisbane Christian Fellowship on the internet. Didn't really push me too hard but sort of just you know would gently insert information here and there and she came came to one of the meetings and saw it for herself and then was able to say well actually this is my experience of what I just witnessed and initially I denied it and then you know as even though she just had planted the seed there I was then able to see it in the next encounter I had against her I'm like hang on a minute that's exactly what she said that's just happened again so I sort of had this awareness of her being there for that that one time sort of Put, the, put it into my mind, it's actually, this is a pretty dangerous group. For Simon, the fathering relationships that he'd been invested in, which taught him to rely on BCF leaders in many ways more than his parents, made leaving even more gut-wrenching. It was a really difficult thing when I left, actually. I actually found it harder to tell. Like Initially when I said, look, I'm, I want to leave the group, I found it more hard to tell people who had been pseudo-parents to me than actually my actual parents. And that was one of the dynamics that was basically, uh, even though like I still have my, my biological parents, it was almost like a double loss because I not only lost my parents when I got excommunicated, but I also lost this these figures who had been father figures in my life and their disapproval was, yeah, it was really difficult to deal with initially. But before he left, Simon tried to share some of the things that he'd been figuring out about the dangers of the way that the organisation was operating. I was excommunicated basically straight away. I didn't go quietly. So the leaders, because I was openly speaking up against what I was seeing, the abuse in the group, they didn't just let me go. They let me go and destroyed me, basically. they Everyone was against me as of that afternoon. Basically, I was just cut off straight away. The ramifications of this, and of coming to terms with having been indoctrinated from birth into an abusive belief system that he never had any choice about, have obviously impacted Simon greatly. Psychologically, I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD. So basically the fallout of the the group basically brought all of that to the surface. And so it took a little bit of time, but many trips to hospital, but Eventually, I was able to get the diagnosis of complex PTSD and then have been able to be treated since. But now I'm under the care of one of the leading psychiatrists in Australia who works a lot with defence. So he's got a lot of experience with veterans who have PTSD. And I'm also under a psychologist who her method of treatment for PTSD is basically I go through a process where they, they grab the trauma and they help you reprocess it in, in a, a method that it's called EMDR, which is essentially, it does what your body does in the REM cycle for sleep. So they they take the memory, they walk you through it, and they're controlling your eyes as you're going through it. And it basically reprocesses the trauma 
into it falls normally in your brain. So again, it's proven to be effective working with like a PTSD with veterans. And so kind of the combination of the two of those working with me has sort of helped reprocess a lot of the trauma that I have from the group and effectively move forward from that. Simon knows people who've turned to drugs and alcohol in the aftermath of their departures and others who have refocused their energies into the evangelical scene. Helen Pomery told the Brisbane Times in 2010, there have been several suicides in the group because people are just tormented, isolated, hounded, bullied. You name it, they do it. From everything he's learned through his own recovery process, Simon is keen, along with his wife, to see if he can do anything to help others on this path. My wife wants to sort of look at more in the future is writing, focusing more on like the recovery. There's a lot of information about, you know, cultic groups and their behaviours. So you look at enough, so it's the same thing you sort of see in all of them. But sort of what we're finding there's a lack of is a lot of resources about recovery and the process of actually rebuilding. I think this is where I have differed a lot from other people that I know is that I've actually had to, I've rebuilt myself since this experience. I've rebuilt myself from the ground up where other people, they've just put it aside and not let it, you know, put it on the shelf, don't deal with it, you know, it happened, but, you know, move on. But I've actually had to really wrestle with it and I think that's where we would like to sort of develop some more resources on this. The the actual digging deep and actually rebuilding process is where we'd like to sort of spend a bit of our time and resources on it, like getting that out there. I always admire the people I speak with who are trying to use their experiences to help others. After channeling her energy into speaking out to the media, Helen Pomery got involved with cult information and family support. Writer Chris Stevenson attended a talk by Helen in Brisbane in 2010 and shared on her blog afterwards, quote, In her quest to have the BCF's abuses stopped, Helen Pomery has written letters to all politicians, state, federal and senators, three or four times, with minimal response. And Chris says in the same post, The fact that our politicians turn a blind eye to this abuse and pretend that there is nothing they can do is both despicable and inexcusable. The defence that the state must allow freedom of religion is a smokescreen for cowardice. These religious institutions are about money and power, not religion. And religious institutions which actively seek to deny freedom of will and action to their adherents should not be protected by laws enacted to safeguard such freedoms. In the Four Corners investigative piece, reporter Chris Masters asked Helen Pomery, what do you say to the proposition, well, you got yourself into this, it was your choice to join the church? Helen answered, I did join the church and now I have every responsibility to warn people about it. The trauma and the ongoing troubling of my heart is that I took my children in there and they didn't have a choice. Former Sydney leader Brian Rensford writes, I look back with deep regret at my own arrogance, my harsh, judgmental treatment of struggling Christians, including some whom I pastored over the years. In terms of where the organisation stands today, it's difficult to say. According to some forum posts I've read, numbers seem to have depleted quite a lot by around 2019. Simon looked in on some of their video uploads a few months ago and was surprised at some of the content of the sermons. 
they were really coming down on talking about people being unclean who have left and not to engage. And for them to be sort of saying that on a public service, I feel that there's probably been a bit of an exodus from the, the group in general, like a large number from across all the centres. So for them to sort of say, having to address that on a bigger scale, I think that there's been a number of people leave in the, number, like the last couple of years, so they're really having to address that. A couple of other signs point to this as well. A post on the Streetcar Forum in February 2022 shared news of a notable exit from the BCF in late 2021 of one of Vic Hall's brothers and his extended family. Then Vic said in a sermon in May last year, quote, I made the point yesterday that we are having to close some smaller groups around the country because we have not been able to find one worthy family there after all the years, and I blame myself a little for this. While the group was already very insular, I do hope this doesn't mean it's becoming even more controlling around members' external relationships, though that does seem like a strong possibility. I'm going to leave you today with Simon's very pragmatic advice to those who may be enmeshed in a similar group right now. I have wasted enough time trying to convince people stuck in groups like that that I just won't even engage. If they're fully indoctrinated, I'm just like, you know, I I don't have the mental energy to keep fighting you. But for someone who is questioning and wanting to leave, then I would be upfront and say, look, what you, the path you're about to engage on is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. You know, I've had to rebuild my entire self, my beliefs, my career, my friends, my personality. Like, I've had to rebuild everything from scratch. And on one sense, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But at the same time, it's the most liberating thing I've had to do. And the experiences that I get to have now and I can enjoy life are, you know, if you'd have said to me four years ago, this was the path you had to take and this is everything you've got to go through, I would have been like, I don't want that. But having walked it and looking back, you can say, well, my life is so much richer now because of these things that I get to do that you just wouldn't have even thought of. One thing that I, it sounds bizarre coming out of my mouth now, but, you know, I can remember the first time actually having to make a decision for myself. Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with on this day? I don't have to go to church. I don't have to go to a meeting. What am I going to do on a Sunday? Like, you know, it sounds like a silly thing to think, but I'm like, oh, my life's actually free. I don't have to go there. I can do what I want. I'm not going to lie. It's terrifying. And, you know, I guess I'm fortunate that I've managed to find a really good support network. Like I've got a great network of friends. I've got the medical support that I need. I've got an amazing wife. Like I've got people around me. I don't think I could have done this by myself. I guess an amazing thing for me to be able to talk about is, you know, the choices and liberation that I now have because of taking that step and making making decisions. One of the biggest liberations for me was I went and saw Queen live and, you know, 12 months before that I was fearful of, I was homophobic, I was fearful of rock music. I couldn't tolerate Queen at all. I didn't even know who they were until the, the movie and then, you know, was so triggered by the movie that I was like, I can't deal with this. And then 12 months later, I saw them live in Sydney and, you know, that sort of, you know, basically at every opportunity I, I can, I give, give the cult the bird.
you can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. There's some exciting new merch in the Tee Public merch store too. Check out the link in the show notes. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say. Something you can do for free is give the podcast a rating on the podcast platform of your choice. I'd really appreciate that. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, with research assistance from Anna Luria. It was edited by Matt Brazel, and the music was by Joe Gould. A big thanks to Simon Doyle for sharing his story. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio-Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia, or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.